Okay, so uh, this morning we continue on in our series in James, titled Faith That Works. Uh, last week, uh, we took time to look together at a non-judgmental faith. Um, we thought about the need for each one of us not to condemn, not to, to cancel, not to criticize, uh, not to gossip. And that's what it means to be a part of a, a healthy church. Um, and this morning, we're going to take time to think about the subject of, of God's will which is a slightly different subject, but we're thinking about um, our responsibility to keep in step uh, with the Spirit of God, to, to keep in step with God's plan and purpose uh, for our lives. And we're going to be thinking about what it means to carry in our hearts a Lord-willing faith, uh, a Lord-willing faith. And it's taken from James 4 and verses 13 uh, through to 17. So if you have your Bibles, let's have a look at this passage. The words, the words are going to be up on the screen, and I'm reading from the CSB. Uh, the Christian Standard Bible. So James, James says this, starting in verse 13. <clears throat> Come now you who say, today or tomorrow, we will travel to such and such a city and spend our year there and do business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be, for you are like a vapor that appears for a little while then vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So it is sin to know the good and yet not do it. Amen. Let's just pray again. Father, this is your word and we are your people. And we, we pray today that, that you would take this word and use it. Help us to hear what you have to say. Work in us. Give us attentive spirits and may we choose to live in a way that's marked by spirit-filled obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, when I was in Bible college, uh, and I think it was, it was in the middle of me writing an essay, um, I was sitting in my flat in Shawlands, uh, and as you do, you get distracted when you're writing essays. Anyone ever experienced that? You get distracted when you're trying to write an essay. Um, and I read this sermon, um, which was called something to the effect of Knowing God's will. Knowing God's will. Uh, the sermon was titled Knowing God's Will, but the punchline to the sermon was this. Do whatever you want. Do whatever you want. Uh, the preacher outlined six different characteristics of God's will. Um, and he spoke about how it's God's will if we are, if we're saved, if we're sanctified, submissive, spirit-filled, suffering, and thankful. Um, almost all of them began with S. Uh, they were all biblical, um, they were all absolutely correct uh, and true. Um, what he presented were basically these bigger biblical realities for anyone who would say they were a Christian, anyone who would call themselves a follower of Jesus. And the question that was posed after going through all of these was this, what do you do now? In light of these, these six areas, what do you do now? How should you respond? If this is God's will, then... How do you now decide where to live, uh, what job to have, who to marry, what church to be a member of? And the answer the preacher gave was this. You decide. You do whatever you want. It's as simple as that. Well, back in my 20s, I heard this and I foolishly thought, brilliant. I can trust my desire. I can do whatever I want. Um, the only issue was I assumed but I was living under these six biblical realities. So I knew I was saved, 
I knew I was being sanctified. I knew I was suffering. But in all, in all honesty, uh, was I really being submissive? No, I wasn't. Um, was my life honestly one of, of being filled with the Spirit every single day? No. And was I truly thankful for all that I had in my life? I would say no. So my attitude was one of, I can do whatever I want. I've, I've read this sermon. This is a, a reputable guy who's preached this message. I can do whatever I want. Because of these truths, God will bless me. This is the attitude I had. It shows just how daft I was. Um, a week later, I heard about this trip to Peru. Uh, working in an orphanage for one week and then going to Machu Picchu the second week. So I heard this and I thought I can do whatever I want. So I booked it. Uh, I joined the team that were going out for a few months. Um, for a, a couple of weeks, it was in a few months' time. Uh, and I was, I was raring to go. I thought... I can do whatever I want. I'm going to go to Peru. The trip arrived, and from start to finish, it was a disaster. Uh, everything that could go wrong seemed to go wrong. First of all, the cost for paying for this trip was huge. I was a student, so it made it really burdensome. Secondly, the Bible college I was a student of told me you can't miss one of the weeks that you're going to be attending this trip to Peru. And if you do miss that week, you're going to have to do an extra year. So this meant I had to change my flights, which cost more money, and I only went for one week instead of two. So that was only the, the first half of the trip to Peru, and then I said goodbye to everyone. Uh, thirdly, I just had this, I had this lack of peace, just through the whole kind of preparation, and even during the trip as well. I don't know if you've ever experienced just that, that lack of peace, this kind of knot in your heart, and your stomach, where you feel like something is amiss, you're not living in line with God's will. I remember buying all this equipment for this walk um, as, part of the, as part of the trip and, and just having this lack of peace as I, as I was in the shop in Glasgow, just sensed that something was not right. Uh, and finally, when I was in Peru, quite a lot of my stuff was stolen uh, as well. And it left this huge cost afterwards because of a complication with the insurance. So I look back in that experience and upon reflection, it was a bit of a mess, uh, and I know that it was not God's will for me to go to Peru. I look back and I can see that it was not his plan for me to go to Peru over those two weeks. Everything that could go wrong almost did go wrong. Shortly after that whole experience, uh, I listened to another sermon um, by a different preacher, uh, and this was a sermon I'd heard before. But now I was listening to it with renewed ears, more sanctified ears, hopefully. Uh, in light of that and other experiences, the sermon was titled The Perfect Place. Uh, basically, the preacher was underlining the absolute importance of bringing everything that we do, everything of our lives, bringing it all before God. And the whole premise that he gave was keeping it really simple, asking God the question on each and every occasion, both big and small, God, is this your will for my life? This was his premise. And you know, as an aside this morning, um, asking that question, I think for all of us, if we all ask that question, in the big and small areas of our lives, it will save us from a lot of hurt. It will save us from a lot of hurt. And it's not that we will be free from hurt when we choose to do that and when we choose to live in God's will. But without question, inviting God into your decision-making 
is that perfect place. Um, it's that perfect place of peace, of power, of provision, of purpose. These were the, the points the preacher had from his sermon. I don't know what it is about preachers and alliteration. Um, it seems to stick. Preachers can't get away from that for some reason. When I heard what, all that he shared uh, around this, uh, I was really struck by how I'd not been doing this in my life. I was really convicted. And I was also struck by how much humility is needed to live in that particular way. So without question, this sermon gave me this real and genuine hunger to, to desire, to desire being in the center of God's will. It wasn't that I had a desire for God's will, but I had a desire to desire being in the center of God's will. Uh, and in hindsight, uh, I look back at these two sermons and there are two very, very different preachers. And I see how it is that both messages have shaped me greatly in my own life. And it's not that I've mastered this, not at all. But I see how God has used both of these experiences and both of these sermons. Um, I think there were definitely serious flaws in the first sermon in terms of application. But I do recognize so much good and so much truth from it. And from the second one, there was an important reminder of the need to seek God, the, the necessity to, to look to God in humility, uh, and particularly in, in the midst of the varied circumstances that we have in life. We can look at all of our lives and we can just see this whole blend of good and bad, big and small, uncertain and certain. And the, the message of, of the second sermon was this, seek God in all of that. Don't miss out any aspect, always seek God. Um, the lessons that I've personally learned from these sermons, I believe, are the lessons that are clearly evident in our passage today in James. And when I, when I look at all that James writes from this passage, it, it leads me to ask these two questions this morning as we begin. The two questions are these. Uh, to what extent do you assume what the Lord's will is for your life? First question. The second question is this. To what extent do you earnestly seek what the Lord's will is for your life? And these are two different attitudes, two different mentalities that we can carry. We can either assume God's will or we can seek God's will. As always, when I prepare a message, I'm preaching to myself and this has been so evident this week. Um, it's amazing what God does in the midst of sermon preparation. Um, he speaks to you and challenges you. Um, and without question, God has spoken to me with regards to these two questions. To what extent do you assume what the Lord's will is for your life? And to what extent do you earnestly seek what the Lord's will is for your life? If we're really honest this morning, we're a lot better at assuming than pursuing when it comes to God's will. Amen? Uh, we find it much easier to do something and having done it, to then have God as an afterthought, than to honestly and humbly submit our plan or plans before the Lord and asking God, God, this is what I'm thinking. This is what I, I hope to achieve. God, I give it to you. I ask for your leading and for your direction in this moment. This is what James is getting at from this passage. This is the essence of what James speaks about in these verses. James speaks to these scattered believers that made up the early church. And he wants them to see but we need to get living in the will of the Lord, right? We need to get living in the, in the will of the Lord, right? And to do that, he first of all identifies the problem. 
Secondly, he then moves on to look at the reason, the reason for that problem. And then thirdly and finally, he wants us to see the solution, the problem, the reason for that problem, the solution. This is a flow of what we're going to be looking at together. And again, like so much of what we read in James, there is so much that we can apply uh, to our own life. So let's just take a moment to ask that God would speak to us through his word and in the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, we invite you now just to come as you lead us in our lives. We pray that you would lead us in this sermon and help us to see what your word says as we think about these three areas. I pray, Lord, that we would choose to, to be attentive to your still small voice as we stand in the foundation of scripture. So bless us now as we are open to what you say and as we respond in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. So number one, the problem. So verse 13 and verse 16 of our passage. Uh, let's have a look at what James says in these two verses. He says, come now you who say, Today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. <clears throat> and also tying in with, this, with these words in verse 13, James says in verse 16, But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Now James uses a phrase, you who say, in verse 13, you who say, and, and also in verse 16, you boast in each of these verses, and it leaves us to ask the question, who is the you? Who is James speaking to here within this passage? And the clue is in what James says elsewhere in verse 13. He uses a phrase, today or tomorrow, alongside the phrase, such and such a city. So these are generic phrases connected to the use of you. So James's message here is for anyone who decides to make plans which I think is everyone here. We all make plans uh, in our lives. Whatever those plans might be, we all make plans in our lives. And it's more than just who James is speaking to. He underlines the why it is that he's speaking to them through an emphasis on what he says next. So James says that these people would say something like this. We will travel. These people say we will travel and we will do business and we will make a profit. James has a major concern about this attitude. James is warning us against having a supreme confidence over our lives with no regard for our own fragility and uncertainty. And in thinking that something is definitely going to happen, there's a belief from that person that they and not God are the sovereign power over our lives. How often do we do that? We, we are convinced. Okay, next, next Tuesday, I will do this. Next Tuesday, I will meet this person. If we want something to happen, then it will happen. And nothing else needs to be said about it. And don't misunderstand this passage. This is not just for business people. Uh, this applies to every single one of us. The reference is business, but James is not specifically challenging the business world here. He's challenging anybody with an attitude of self-sufficiency that is far removed from what it means to be a follower of Jesus, one who is dependent on him. And let's be honest, as I've said already, we are all guilty of these moments, moments in life where we do not take into consideration what God might be saying in the midst of plans. The reality is that you could sit down, you could sit down today, you could, you could plan out the rest of this year, 
and you could not offer a single prayer to God. Never asking for his wisdom. Never asking for his guidance. And all that you look ahead to. I mean, it's easy to do. It's just so easy for us to look ahead to plan. Some of us get a real satisfaction in planning. Planning is a good thing. It is a good thing, but we need to order planning right. Planning has to to come under God and his word. So, in a word, we might describe this sin as a sin of presumption. The sin of presumption. It assumes that life can be lived with no worshipful regard for God. And have a look at what Alec Mottier says in this passage in his commentary in James. So he writes this. What is this presumptuousness of which James speaks? It first touches life. Today, tomorrow, a year. It is a presumption that we can continue alive at will. Secondly, it touches choice. Today or tomorrow we will go spend a year trade. It is a presumption that we are masters of our own life. So that we need to do no more no more than decide and lo and behold it will happen like that. Thirdly, it touches ability and trade and get gain. Of course we shall succeed if we want. We can do it. Let's be honest this morning. No one needs to be taught how to do this. No one needs to be taught. Choosing to live apart from God in all of these ways, it all comes very naturally to each one of us because we're all descendants of Genesis 3. It's our default and it makes us absolutely makes absolutely no different it makes us absolutely no different from, from the world around us when we actively choose to live in that way so we are all like this and this in some way is a reflection of the world and in verse 16 James wants us to understand that it's not just that we plan and look ahead with no regard for God no we all have a potential from time to time to boast in our own arrogance as well we actually have the audacity to boast in our boasting. This is what James is speaking of. And as James says here in verse 16, all such boasting is evil. So to give you an example, straight from verse 13 and 16, we make a plan and we say something to the effect of this. I'm going to go to this place. I'm going to do this. And I'm going to accomplish this. And then boastfully we say to ourselves and to other people, look at all that I've planned out here. I've planned this, this, and this, and look at what I've done. We boast and are boasting. All of which might sound like quite a niche sin, because how many of us are traveling on business to close deals? There's not many of us here in this room that are doing that. But at a much broader and deeper level, this is the sin of independence from God. This is a belief that we can live partially autonomous or completely autonomous from his rule and reign. And this is a sin that we all fall guilty of from time to time, both believer and unbeliever. You know, when you look at the statistics uh, of the content of funeral services in the UK, and I'm guessing this is not something you do in your spare time, but if you were to to look at that, uh, one of, if not the most popular songs to be played at a funeral, does anyone know what it is? My way. My Way by Frank Sinatra. And I know it's an old song. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing it today. Uh, The message of the song is so relevant. It's so relevant in our world. Regrets, I have had a few. But then again, too few to mention. 
I did what I had to do. I saw it through without exemption. I planned each charted course. I mean, that's just taken right from our passage. Each careful step along the byway and more, much, much more. I did it. I did it. My way. There's two problems with this song, I believe. First off, it's really catchy. Um, you can't help but caught up in it, particularly when Frank Sinatra belts out my way. Um, the second problem is it deeply connects to the issue that James addresses here in our passage, and it's an issue, it's, it's a wrong thing. This song is a microcosm for our world. And often the Christian world, the church, I mean, it's incredible. Like we, we choose to, to live a life, hopefully we choose to live a life in obedience to Christ. I mean, we just sang, I surrender all. I wonder how, how heartfelt that was as we sang that. I surrender all. I surrender all is the antithesis of my way. It's the exact opposite. We do it God's way, not our way. So what we're going to do now is look at a much deeper level as to the reason why this is a problem. We've identified this sin of presumptuousness. It's a problem for our world. It's a problem in the church. It's a problem for our very lives. Why? Why is this? Why is this a problem in a much deeper level? Well, the reason that this is a problem is found in verse 14. And James explains this so clearly to us. He writes this, he says, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be, for you are like vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes. This word vapor actually relates to a regular occurrence in Palestinian climate when water droplets in the air would form condensation and then they would just evaporate, disappear very quickly. So this word is connected to that moment. And all of which dovetails with the words of a Roman non-Christian philosopher, Seneca. And he wrote something similar to what James writes in our passage. He says this, He who is venturing investments by land and sea, who had also entered public life and left no type of business untried, during the very realization of financial success and during the very onrush of the money that flowed into his coffers, was snatched from the world. The great theologian Augustine actually explains this in greater detail and when he speaks about the frailty, the fragility of human life, and take note, Augustine does not mince his words here. He says this, restoring health for a time to a man's body amounts to no more than extending his breath for a little while longer. Therefore, it should not be considered of great importance because it's temporal, not eternal. Baseball bat from Augustine there. Um, all of this ties in with the words of Solomon, Proverbs 27 and verse 1, Solomon says this, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you don't know what a day might bring. So I hope we get the point here. I really do hope we understand what James is getting at here. I hope we understand why it is we should not presume anything of what tomorrow or the next day might hold. Our lives are like a vapour. Our lives are like a mist, our lives are transitory, meaning that we really are here one minute and gone the next. That's the reality. Jesus also gave us this parable in Luke 12 and in verses 15 to 21. 
And I believe this is so important for us as we think about this passage, but also as we think about our lives. Luke writes, He, Jesus, then told them, Watch out and be on guard against all greed, because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. Denison Baptist Church, your life is not in the abundance of your possessions. Then he told them a parable. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I will do this, he said. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods there. Then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy, eat, drink and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life is demanded of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And how often this is us. We can come up with the greatest financial plan for our lives and be completely unaware that we're not going to see it one day. That might be tomorrow. That might be sometime in the future. So James warns us this morning, be aware of how fragile and temporary your life is. Live with both eyes, not just one eye, but both eyes looking ahead to eternity. That's my heart for you as a pastor, that you would not look to what you see around us, but you would look beyond what you see and into eternity. So we've spent time looking at the problem, the reason for that problem, number two, and then finally the solution. What's the solution? Well, the solution is found in verse 15 of our passage, and it's backed up by what James says in verse 17. So in verse 15, James says, Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And then following on from that, so it's sin to know the good and yet not do it. So these are two powerful sentences. And these ought to be imprinted on our hearts and our minds as we go into this week. But we have to take hold of, of what James is getting at. If anything, we should carry these, these verses, verse 15 and verse 17, it should be like we're walking about with these verses and all that we do this week. Now, if you were to look at any of the ancient literature at that time, you would actually discover that phrase, if God wills, or if the gods will, eh, these were commonplace phrases. My nephew's uh, taking a fuss here. <laughs> uh, so when James, when James says, the Lord wills, this was a common phrase in that culture. He's actually tapping into a well-known phrase of Jewish culture. And I love what Douglas Moo says about what it is that James does here in verse 15. Verse 15, uh, James uh, Moo says this, James takes a common expression of general religious sentiment and baptizes it in the service of his distinctive biblical vision of history and its sovereign ruler. I love that. I love that idea of taking a secular phrase and baptizing it and making it something that we can making it something that we can actually honor and glorify God. And not only is James connecting that secular phrase and redeeming it in a way that helps us to see how we should live under God's sovereign rule, but we also see this idea of being used this idea being used throughout the New Testament, outside of what James writes. So we see this idea of God's will throughout the New Testament. So Matthew seven twenty one, Jesus says not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will 
of my Father in heaven, the person who does the will of God, of, of his Father will enter the kingdom of heaven. And in Ephesus in Acts 18, verses 20 to 21, we read of this account of the Apostle Paul. When they asked him, that's Paul, to stay for a longer time, he declined. But he said farewell and added, I'll come back to you again if God wills. Then he set sail from Ephesus. Finally, 1 Corinthians 1, 1, the Apostle Paul says, says this to the church in Corinth. Paul called as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will and Sosthenes, our brother, called as an apostle by the will of God. So I hope we see there's New Testament foundation, there's New Testament precedent for a Lord will and faith that James speaks of here. But to have this kind of Lord will and faith, that doesn't mean that you blend Christianese with superstition. What do I mean by that? Well, the danger for you and I is that we think our sentences around what we're planning to do in the future, they're only ever valid if we say those words, if God wills, if the Lord wills. So God protect us from Christianese and superstition. And not only that, but to have this kind of Lord will and faith does also not mean that we walk around with these words like some kind of badge of honour, like we're godlier people if we say in our sentences, God willing, the Lord willing. No, God wants us to avoid the external dangers of misinterpreting what James writes here. And his word in this passage points us to the fact that a Lord willing faith is a faith that's about desire. It's a desire we have in our hearts to pursue God, to live for God. Your desire for the will of God begins not with a sentence spoken out loud, but with a deep, deep longing in your heart. You want God's will over and above your own will or someone else's will. So my invitation to you is to go into this week. We all have different weeks. Some of us busy, some less busy. And in the quietness of your heart, my invitation to you is to recite the Lord's Prayer. So as you spend time with family, as you look ahead to time with family this week, just say this, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, as you go about your work, uh, as you anticipate the various meetings you're going to have in your work, the deadlines you need to meet in your work or in your study, again, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, as you think about how to rest in this week, how it is you can make the best use of, a, of your time to recharge, Again, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as you serve in the various ministry responsibilities that you have, as you think about what it means to be a part of the life of Denison Baptist Church, because we do need you, we need you to be a part in helping out and involved. Again, this prayer, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so obvious to me this morning, is how this applies to Holiday Club and Esau and our community meals, the missions week we have in the first week in July. Uh, and if we bring everything to the surface this morning, just going to do that this morning, if we have an honest conversation with one another, I recognize that some of you are probably feeling tired today. Um, I see it. I smell it. I get the vibe. We are feeling kind of a bit tired, including Jacob. 
the idea of, of Missions Week, five days of what could potentially be sheer mentalness, so I recognize that, is maybe something that you don't feel like, something you don't want to do, however much or little you can, you can give to that. Uh, and I say that recognizing that we do need your help in all three of these areas. We need your help for Holiday Club, for ESOL, uh, for the community meal. Uh, and I say that as well, recognizing that we're not asking everyone to do all three of these, but we are asking for help in these areas. So we recognize that, that we are tired. I think we're all tired. We recognize that there is this, this significant week within the life of the church where there's lots to do. And I'm not standing here this morning and telling you that as, as someone who is connected to the life of DVC that you have to sign up for this. I'm not saying that. That's not my job. It wouldn't make sense for me to do that. But what I am asking you to do this morning, as you think about the possibility of this first week in July, and as you look at your own heart, and as you see in your heart your name, and then Missions Week underneath your name, and then a question mark underneath that, is to then respond to that by saying this simple prayer. God, as I think about my possible involvement in this week, I give it to you. Your kingdom come, your will be done in my life, in that week as it is in heaven. So understand, I'm not saying that, that you have to be involved, but I would ask you to prayerfully consider it and to, to bring it to God. As we've talked about already with all of this passage, to ask God, your kingdom come, your will be done. How can I be involved in this mission week? And I would 100% guarantee it will be hard work, but you're not going to look back and regret at praying that prayer. You won't look back and regret, or even in receiving what it is that God has to say to you as a result of praying that prayer. Because as I've said already this morning, his will for your life really is a perfect place. It's a perfect place. So James closes this chapter by showing us just how serious it is to not pray that kind of prayer. Whether it be missions week or ministry or work or family or rest, he shows us just how important it is that we must be a people who regularly ask God, what is your will? What is your plan? What is your purpose? And in his blunt, straight-to-the-point style, James says this in verse 17. He says, so it is sin to know the good and yet not do it. And uh, this verse applies to everything of life. Um, in this particular example, James wants us to understand that when we actively do not bring God into our decision-making, when we choose not to search for scriptures, seek his face in prayer, when we choose not to ask for his leading and direction from the church family, then to not do that is to sin. Us flying solo with no awareness of what God might want and desire for us is so contrary to what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to, to live a life that is empowered and led by God through his spirit. So I want us to take seriously uh, what we've looked at this morning. This is not a recommendation I'm giving you. I'm not saying this might be a good idea for you to, to follow what James says here. <clears throat> whether or not we make the will of the Lord the center of every part of our lives will be the determining factor as to whether or not we will sin or not. It's as important and as serious as that. If we do not ask God 
then we know deep down in our heart we should have asked God, yet we choose not to do it. And that, by definition, as James says in verse 17, is sin. And it's not just that we go against God's will by doing what we shouldn't do. As James says here, we go against that will by not doing what we should do. Uh, our sins are both sins of commission and omission. Um, so maybe you failed to help that person who was in need. Maybe you didn't use the opportunity to give reason for the hope that you had to that person at work. Maybe instead of choosing time to spend, to be in God's presence, you chose to, to binge watch a show on Netflix. I don't know about you, but the more and more I look at my own life, the more and more I realize that the majority of my sin is sin of omission, not commission. And I don't want us this morning to feel overwhelmed, as we can at times feel overwhelmed by what James says. Uh, yes, it's important that we take a look at the ways in which we fall short. But my invitation to you this morning is, do not stop there. Do not rest in the fact that we so often fall short when it comes to what James writes here. Instead, this morning, we all need to, to look to Jesus. He's the one who rescued us from our sin. And he is the one who has also not only rescued us from our sin, but he has given us the ability to then live the life he has called us to live. So when you look at Jesus, you see the perfect example of our Lord will and faith. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he went to the cross to die for our sins, Jesus said this, he said, Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, not my will, but your will, yours be done. Jesus' example for us, how you and I can live out a, a Lord-willing faith. And not only does he example for us that kind of life, the incredible thing is he shows us how to live that life, but he also carries us to that life. He carries each one of us. We can live a life marked by being in the center of the Lord's will because he carries us through our lives in every single moment of our lives. So when you and I rest in the arms of Christ, you'll find yourself being carried and led into God's will in the big and the small areas. And that's my invitation to you this morning, is to recognize the example of Christ, but to also recognize that Christ will give us all that we need to do that. Yeah, I was walking to church this morning, um, and I was just taking time to reflect on a few scriptures, and one of the ones that I had uh, for today was uh, 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 10. And I think, yeah, it should be up on the screen. It's, it's just such a, an important verse for us. As we think about living in the will of the Lord, Paul, you know, this, this guy who had such a huge reputation, so well respected, achieved so much, was so aware of his own personal weakness. And so he says, so I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So my invitation to you this morning is to rest in that reality. To recognize you're weak, we are all weak, and then to rest in Christ. When it comes to the will of God, this has to be a starting point. We, we, can't, we can't try and muster up or achieve in our own strength. We have to rest in Christ as our starting point for fulfilling the will of God. And watch as you rest in him, how it is that he's going to lead you into all that he has planned for you. So that the most natural thing for you to say in any given moment and in any given situation 
is if the Lord wills. So we're going to respond uh, this morning. And during a time of worship, there's an opportunity to come to the table. And, and again, I would invite you just to ask, if you love the Lord today, to ask yourself a question. Is it, God, is it your will for me to come to this table today to take this bread and to drink this cup? Praise God that our sins have been washed clean. Praise God that our eternity is secure. And praise God that joy can be experienced in our lives because of the gift of his Holy Spirit. So we invite you to come to the table. It was on the night in which he was betrayed that Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink this, do so in remembrance of me. For as often as we take this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. So the invitation for you, if you love the Lord today, is to come and receive, to remember, to rejoice, to give thanks for how good God has been to you. And let me also share as well, if you've been challenged um, by anything of what we've looked at, um, if you would like prayer, then do speak to myself or Paul or TJ or maybe someone you know who loves the Lord, and maybe you've never made a decision to, to follow Christ, then the invitation is there for you to do that today, to speak to one of us. And maybe you're finding it difficult at the moment. Maybe you need prayer. And maybe you would like prayer for a pain or an illness. And we would ask in Jesus' name for God's healing touch to be upon you. So we're going to have tea and coffee after our time. But we're also going to have prayer. So there's going to be space to pray together. If you need prayer, do not miss out on this opportunity. Because it would be, it would be silly, let me say. It would be silly for us to come here to receive, to have something burdened in our heart and to walk away still carrying that burden. This is why the church exists. We, we exist to support and encourage one another so that Christ might be glorified amongst us and so that we might be more effective for the mission he's called us to. So let me pray as we respond in these ways. Father, we, we do thank you for your word. And we thank you that, that you, you have a plan and a will for, for each one of us. And I thank you that that stems from the love uh, that, that you have to us, the love that you have demonstrated, and the, and the love that you continue to show each and every day. Lord, we pray that you would take what we have learned today and that you would, you would press it deep into our hearts. We pray that there would be biblical roots in our lives that would enable us to then be spiritually fruitful for you as we go into this week. Would you bless us as, as we respond in worship, as we take the bread and drink the cup, and as we have fellowship and have prayer together, we ask that you would work through this time, and it would be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you guys.